I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is the Global Sport Matters Podcast. Next week, America's eyes will turn to the Super Bowl, and we here at the Global Sport Institute will also be turning our eyes to something else. The NFL's Rooney Rule was intended to give opportunities to coaches of color, but data shows that after nearly 20 years, the impact may not be as significant as many have hoped. On Friday, February 5th, the Global Sport Institute and Global Sport Matters will be releasing new data looking at an in-depth look at hiring and firing trends within the National Football League's head coaching positions. The new data examines the pipeline to head coach and sheds light on the real impact of the Rooney Rule. That's on our next Global Sport Matters Live, Friday, February 5th at 11 a.m. Arizona time, 1 p.m. Eastern. We've put a link to register for the event in our show notes. And now, the show. With just six months to go, the International Olympic Committee and Japan are battling rumors about whether or not the Games will take place. In a recent poll conducted by Japanese news agency Kyoto and the Tokyo Broadcasting System, 80% of respondents said that the Games should not happen as COVID-19 continues to rise on the island country. Last week, the London Times reported that the Japanese government had already privately concluded that the Games needed to be canceled and are looking for a way to announce the news while saving face. And even without local fans, should the Games go on without proper infrastructure and enforcement, many say it has the ingredients for a super spreader event. On the show today, we talk about the fate of the 2021 Tokyo Olympics with Jules Boykoff, professor at Pacific University and expert on politics of the Olympic Games, as well as Lori Okamura, former chair of USA Volleyball and international technical official for the Tokyo Paralympic Games. I'm Andrew Ramsamy, and this is a Global Sport Matters podcast. Jules, Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. So I want to start it with what happened at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Um, as many of our listeners on the Global Sport Matters podcast have heard, there was an insurrection at the Capitol. Did you guys hear about that insurrection at the Capitol? Little insurrection at the Capitol, Lori? How do you take uh, your inaugurations? I maybe a little bit about it. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you're going to do an inauguration, yeah, you should uh, have an insurrection. Yeah, I, heard, I heard a little bit about it. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. Otherwise, what would the week before be? You know, right, right. To do. Yeah, you look. Yeah, what do you? What do we? What does one look forward to uh, post insurrection? Inauguration. Um, but yes, there was an insurrection at the, at the Capitol as then President-elect Biden was being voted into office by Congress, and among those who stormed the Capitol was gold medal Olympian swimmer Cleet Keller, who wore his USA swim jacket to the event that day. So. Jules, in an article that you uh, authored, uh, that you co-authored with uh, David Zirin, there's a link made from from Cleet Keller, who is a white athlete, to white-centered racism that we've seen throughout Olympic history. What was going on in your mind when you saw what was going on that day, and then you you know come to find that Cleet Keller, an Olympic gold medalist, is part of the siege? 
Well, there's the story of the individual Cleet Keller, whose descent into Trumpian grievance politics was slow, cold, and a lot of his friends observed it painfully. Then there's the sort of backdrop of the Olympics and what is it, what it stood for historically. And unfortunately, from the very beginning of the Olympics, it's been sort of a frenzy of flag waving, a whole lot of problems. You know, when George Orwell talked about the international sporting contest leading to orgies of hatred, he was talking about the Olympic Games back then. Now, everybody knows the athletes are wonderful. And it was fun to watch Cleet Keller, I'm sure, when he was swimming up and down the pool. But there's no question that the backdrop of Olympic history is all about racism, sexism, and hyper-nationalism, as well as some class privilege. And that fits pretty well with a lot of the marauders we saw ripping their way through the Capitol on January 6th. So in a sense, his descent into Trumpianism maybe was a surprise to some of his friends, maybe wasn't. But the backdrop in the wider picture definitely is not a surprise when it comes to the Olympics. Now, of course, we've got lots of athletes who don't fall prey to these kind of Trumpian politics and grievance politics. That should definitely be said. But when one does kind of go down that path, it might not be a big surprise. Have we seen this elsewhere, that this is not just an American thing, that that other athletes from other sports have gone involved in politics that unfortunately might, you know, some might view as being on the wrong side of history? Absolutely. I mean, think about Italian football is is every once in a while you've got someone doing a fascist salute of prominent players, no less. So, yeah, it's not uncommon for athletes to take the far right political path. I mean, they are humans in pockets of humanity, just like everywhere else. You know, there's there's no monolithic athlete who happens to be centrist or to the left of center. So it shouldn't come as a huge surprise. But yeah, I mean, this jumps out to us because the guy wore his Olympic jacket into the Capitol as he bashed about. That was especially kind of curious and interesting at the same time. Yeah, I mean, one doesn't wake up uh, the morning of an insurrection and say to themselves, I'll just put on any old jacket that fits. Uh, so, Lori, when you saw that, when when you, you know, when you the news came out that there was this Olympic gold medalist who had taken part in the insurrection, what went through your mind? Well, I'll back it up just a second, because I, I happen to have been glued to my Twitter feed that day, you know, anyway. I mean, just in complete horror and disbelief. Well, maybe maybe not disbelief given all the events that had led, you know, up to that moment. But um, I actually, my first glimpse of Cleet Keller, and I didn't know it was Cleet Keller at the time, was actually, I remember saying this out loud, like, what am I, you know, uh, what the hell, you know, I think I see an Olympic jacket. I noticed the round logo, right? And I thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. You know, I mean, the, the visit to the White House was in 2016. The next one doesn't come until if and when we have another Olympics. What the heck is that jacket, you know, doing there? And so that was my first glimpse. And then um, I happened to see the piece on Swim Swam, you know, in the, in the swimming world that people were, were starting to identify that, hey, I think there was an Olympic swimmer and not just any Olympic swimmer, but a multiple, you know, gold medalist. Um, in the crowd, and I thought, okay, I'm not a. I'm not crazy. I did see, you know, what I what I thought I saw. But b, how interesting, you know, how embarrassing, how interesting, how sad, you know, who was it, and how did we get to this point? And obviously, as the story unfolds, and you realize, you know, the the spiral that this that this gentleman went down in his you know, personal life, but also, you know, really the symbolism of okay. You know, the, the last time he was wearing an Olympic jacket was probably when he was getting his medal, you know, hung around his neck or maybe at an alumni affair, 
you know, at some point or some, you know, personal appearance. But the fact that most, I would argue to say most athletes, you know, who own the jacket, see it or anybody, even if you're not an athlete, if you were part of the delegation, if you were a fan who purchased it for a gross amount of money online, you know, you identify in a somewhat, um, you know, meaningful way with that piece of apparel, right? And for him to choose that particular representation of USA, you know, Andrew, the thing I had kind of going through my head and, and it stuck with me for several days was, you know, I remember back in Rio where people would chant, you know, back when we had live events, right? And people could chant, you know, USA or, or Nippon or, you know, whatever country, you know, that they usually are cheering for. And when I hear the, you know, the, the Trumpers on the, the lawn of the Capitol making those same chants, like I get sick to my stomach, to be honest. You know, I, I really just couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. And then to see the Olympic logo, you know, on one of the people actually, you know, in, in the, in not only in the middle of the insurrection, but, you know, taking part through his own physical action, right, in the destruction and the, the violence, you know, that was, that was really a, a low point um, for me personally, you know, in my uh, support of the Olympics and the Paralympic movement. So we've seen activism um, and, and activism typically, you know, I'll be I'll be in the interest of bias, say that when we think of activists, we're thinking of we're thinking of them doing something for good. Do you think perhaps in his mind that he was doing something for good that the same way that, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists back in 68, that he effectively was raising his fist on January 6th, 2021? Jules? Well, I think we need to be really careful when it comes to equivalence here in these cases. And scoping back just a little bit from Cleet Keller, I've seen this a lot in Portland, where I live, where we have Black Lives Matter anti-fascist protests all the time. We had 100 plus consecutive days of them, and they continue now under Biden. And those protests are often in the media compared to as equivalence to some of the right-wing protests that we've seen from groups like Patriot Prayer, for example, or the Proud Boys that were referenced in one of the presidential debates. Their stomping grounds are also Portland. And when you think about it, it's not really fair to make those equivalent in the sense that those that are fighting for Black Lives Matter and against fascism are certainly moving in a direction toward justice, toward opening up society, toward everybody for equality. Whereas the other side, quite frankly, is about hate. I mean, the Proud Boys are a hate group, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so I think some of the tactics that some of the activists might take, tactics and strategies are neutral. But the goals that these groups are pursuing are wildly disparate. And so I hesitate to make too great a comparison between Cleet Keller and another Olympian like John Carlos, for goodness sake, pushing in the absolute opposite direction, pushing for peace, justice, and human rights. And this gentleman pushing for what Trump stands for, which is basically the opposite direction. And Lori, I mean, we've seen a lot of this activism, you know, especially last summer with the kind of, you know, awakening on race. Now it was, you know, literally, right, the day that that the, the Senate and, and Congress was going to officially announced that Joe Biden was the next president of the United States. What do you think, you know, in your role that you've seen how sport has evolved, you know, throughout these last few years that that there are people who are just kind of like confused as to what do all of these things mean and how do they interpret them? Sorry, I, I hesitate to try to jump into yeah, your mind, you know, and try to assume what they're thinking, you know, but 
based on everything we've seen and and you know what we what we believe um you know we've defined in terms of activism like what we saw on january 6 was not activism you know it was straight up violence period you know athletes who are trying to um use their voice or uh you know whether we call it protest or a peaceful protest or whatnot i think there's a very big difference between um amplifying you know a cause or a belief your own cause or your own belief um, and amplifying that through verbal means or even you know raising a fist or anything else versus taking that fist and picking up a rock and throwing it through somebody's personal property right or federal property i think that the, the once you incite the act of violence into your messaging it becomes less of a peaceful protest and more of just outright rage you know and frustration i mean i don't recall seeing the same um, you know, no matter what your political affiliation is, I don't recall seeing the same level of insurrection or any insurrection um, back in 2017, you know, January 2017. I know I saw a lot of people drinking a lot more wine out of a box, but, you know, I, I you know, it's, there's a big difference in the mindset of any person, athlete or not, that draws directly to violence or physicality you know, as opposed to let's let's have a conversation, you know, about what it is that I'm trying to say and what it is that I'm trying to do. Um, big difference to me, at least, you know, but I, I, I hesitate to jump into the, the mind. I, I just cannot wrap my my head around the mindset, you know, of, of a person who could hate you because of the color of your skin or because of the person that you supposedly voted for in any election or, um, you know, whether or not you're wearing an Olympic jacket, right? Yeah, if I could piggyback off of what Lori's saying right there, I thought it was really interesting because she very deftly avoided the word terrorist, which has been applied to a lot of the folks that were marauding through the Capitol. And I think that's correct to avoid that word terrorist. Um, that has been used typically against leftist activists. And the definitions, if you look at them from the FBI, State Department, the USA Patriot Act, which, by the way, stands for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing the Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism Act. So it's a piece of propaganda, the very acronym of the title. That has a definition of terrorism in it. And it's hard to make a lot of the kind of activism that we've seen in the streets, whether it was on the 6th of January or was those 100 plus days here in Portland, conform to that definition of terrorism. So I was really interested to see the new president, President Biden, freely calling the people that went through the Capitol terrorists, like as a en masse in a group. Now, individual people might have acted in terroristic fashion that meets those definitions. But I think we need to be careful, just as Lori was, with the terminology that we use, because quite frankly, as someone who's looked at the history of suppression of dissent in this country, the word terrorism is typically flipped on people that are fighting for justice. Martin Luther King Jr. was called a terrorist in his day. The certainly environmentalists fighting against climate change today are sometimes called terrorists. People that are fighting against fascism today are called terrorists today. This is in the mainstream press. And so um, I think we need to be really careful and it's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. And the government is talking about possibly new legislation that will outline people as terrorists. And I think that needs to be avoided. We got plenty of laws on the books to prosecute people like Cleet Keller and all the other people that marauded through the Capitol. I'd be really hesitant to add yet another law on terrorism to the books. So speaking of that moving forward, we do have a new president in the White House and the previous president had an interesting relationship with sport, um, one that, you know, he was very vocal about in terms of making sure that sport would return quickly 
during the pandemic um, and talking about specifically college sport and wanting to get that back on the field. Um, he would extend invitations to certain teams. Teams would not show up after they've won. What do you think this next administration will mean to the relationship of sport? And will we see some of the traditions of what a president has done in the past, throwing out the first pitch, inviting people to the White House to celebrate their accomplishments and winning, you know, World Series titles or, or whatever? Will we see a, a restoration or will there be a difference in how the White House has a relationship with the world of sport? That's a great, that's such a great question. I, I think um, a couple of things. I think that definitely there's going to be a difference in how we proceed, um, not just because of whatever administration you know is in place now um, or how the Biden administration feels about traditions of sport, but also because if nothing else, this pandemic has shown us just how frail the framework of, of sport can be, right? I mean, I'll take myself, for example. I mean, one day, you know, I had my entire income for, of, of live sporting events wiped out. And that's typically, you know, not, not something that would normally happen, right, in your profession or in your chosen, you know, line of work, right? That's a real extreme. Um, so in terms of will we see, I, I'm sure we will see a change um, in interaction because already this administration has shown that, that uh, you know, they have interests in certain areas and one of them is sport, you know. Uh, will we see the grandiose, um, you know, any celebrations, probably they're going to be very different. You know, they're going to be probably toned down quite a bit. Um, you know, will will there be a difference in the type of interactions instead of maybe holding up a jersey, you know, and taking a photo op, maybe they would be a day of service. Maybe there would be, um, you know, some sort of other interaction, right? Throwing out the first pitch, that's great. Um, you know, but what about taking a bunch of neighborhood kids or paying for boys and girls clubs to come with you to the, you know, to the game? I mean, I, I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what would, what might I do to change my own, you know, enjoyment or involvement in sport. Um, but I think that the, you know, it probably wouldn't be fair to say that the traditions would change or get better or worse just because of the administration. Um, although I think the reactions and the, you know, the response to the invitations might be different, you know, might be a little bit different. Um, but I think it's unfair to just put that on the the tone or the attitude of the administration because things in general have changed so drastically because of the, um, you know, the pandemic situation. It's actually forced us to kind of cut away at those layers of, of fluff and, you know, pomp and circumstance and just kind of get right down to, okay, do we celebrate this? Do we not celebrate this? Great, can we do it on Zoom? Perfect. There it is, right? Everybody save a plane trip. Everybody, you know, save a mask, wear it at home or be on your own computer. But, you know, I think, I think, yeah, we're going to see a drastic change in just in general in the way um, things are celebrated from now on. And Jules, what do you think? What do you think the relationship's going to be with Joe Biden now in the White House and, and its relationship to sport? Well, I think once we get through the long COVID moment, things will return to normality in terms of White House visits. Be interesting to see if Joe Biden puts heaping piles of fast food in front of the athletes. Something tells me he's not going to continue that Trumpian tradition, but um, I think we'll get back to normality in, in that sort of way. Whether we get to a place where Joe Biden is open to some of the more radical claims that are coming from the sports world is a different question to me. So we have a really interesting moment we're living where there are athletes who are making radical demands. And it's easy to just sort of go with the 
blow as the president and say, yeah, of course I support you know, racial justice, I support LGBTQ politics. But when the moment gets a little spikier and the demands get serious and heavier, then it'll be interesting to see kind of where he goes. I'm thinking particularly of people like Rayson Bowden and Gwen Berry, who've been outspoken US Olympians for justice, for racial justice in the United States, who are willing to push the envelope, who are willing to even maybe speak out on the world's biggest platform of the Olympics should they transpire. I think that's where it'll be really interesting to see how Joe Biden reacts, how the Biden administration embraces or doesn't embrace those individuals. It's always easy to do so years after the fact. I mean, President Obama celebrated Tommy Smith and John Carlos many, many years after the fact when they were pretty far back in the rear view window of history. But what about when it's happening in the present? It's always messier. So that's what I'll be really interested to see in the coming weeks and months, how Biden reacts to some of the more spikier tactics, as well as some of the more radical demands coming from athletes. And, you know, looking ahead towards what should have been or what was going to be a very large sporting event last year, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, which now are the Tokyo 2021 Olympics. Lots of discussion as to whether or not the Olympics are going to go on. Uh, a survey, I guess, was taken. A poll was taken asking uh, folks in Japan whether or not they wanted to see the Olympics go on. And 80 percent said no, they don't. So, Jules, can you give us a, a sense of what's going on in Japan right now in terms of the weight of the decision as to whether or not to cancel again? Yeah, I mean, it is fascinating to see what's happening in Tokyo and Japan more generally. I mean, if anything, the last year has shown that the coronavirus is an even more deadly threat than we initially realized when it emerged in early 2020. And like you said, Andrew, 80% of the public in Japan right now, 80% want the games either postponed or canceled. That's unheard of. I mean, that is such a low level of popularity. But there's tons of pressure on the government, on the organizers to follow through. After all, they've plunged nearly $30 billion into this. Let's not forget, originally it was only supposed to cost $7.3 billion when they were bidding on the Olympics back in 2013. But today the price tag is probably about $30 billion. And that's according to an audit by the Japanese government itself. And so there's a kind of desperate need to kind of claw back some of the extraordinary sums of money that they've spent on the Olympic Games. And so that's a little bit of pressure. Uh, Shinzo Abe, the prime minister, sunk a former prime minister now, sunk loads of political capital into the endeavor. The current prime minister has suggested that they want to keep on going with these games no matter what. You've got the Tokyo governor openly saying that we're going to ho host the Olympics, whatever it takes, quote unquote, whatever it takes. People in Japan are hearing that and thinking, my gosh, this is bone chilling. Like who goes to the Olympics? Lots of people from the United States with the coronavirus hot zone of the world. And you're going to have them coming over in these tiny aluminum tubes and making their way around town. That could be obviously very scary for people in Japan. And so I think that there's that, that helps explain why essentially the general population has come in essence to the position of anti-Olympics groups in uh, Tokyo. Hangarin no Kai is a really active group there and Okotoa Link, two groups that have been fighting against the Olympics. Now they're basically kind of a mainstream position that they shouldn't be held this year. And Lori, you know, we saw at the beginning of, of the pandemic uh, when sports were trying to return, you know, folks talking about, uh, you know, moving resources over to sports teams to be able to do testing. Right. We didn't even have a vaccination. And now they're talking about a mass vaccination for all these uh, Olympic athletes. I mean, should resources be diverted to Olympic athletes so that we can see uh, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics uh, coming up this summer? 
Well, my, my answer to that is, is, you know, absolutely not, because right now we can barely get the resources for frontline workers, for doctors, for nurses, for, um, you know, the people who are, are maintaining our, our emergency hospital wards and such. Um, and it's not just us in the United States, it's all over the world. Now in Japan, what one thing that I, I wanted to piggyback on what Jules said is that, you know, it's not only the, the matter of how much money has been spent already, you know, on the game, which is just, I mean, every day, you know, the, 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 the amount keeps growing and growing. But that 80% figure of the people that are, are, whether it's not comfortable or flat out don't want the games, you know, all the people that are involved or included in that 80%, that's the key number to me. Because traditionally in Japan, and I've done business my whole career in Japan, you know, and traditionally in Japan, sport and sporting events, right, especially sporting events on this large scale, world championships, um, you know, Olympics, you know, whatever, whatever large grand scale four-year sporting events we're, we're talking about. Um, this is what the people in Japan live for. The marketers, the, the volunteers, I mean, they really have been traditionally, culturally, you know, very supportive of um, not just Olympic and Paralympic sport, but sport, right, in general. And so for such a large percentage of the population to feel that the game should not go forward. You know, obviously we're in this pandemic situation that that raises, you know, the level for certain people of discomfort or, um, you know, whether it's uh, lost, lost wages or family members passing or just uncertainty or being afraid, you know, but the, the scent of 80%, I mean that, I can't get that number out of my head because that is, I think the most significant number. Now, when you consider that, I mean, I, I made this joke, actually it wasn't it, but I made, I made this joke back in 2016, you know, right before Rio is that, geez, just give it to, when the Zika virus, you know, concerns were, were coming around, you know, and I said, well, hey, listen, Tokyo's ready, you know, I mean, just give it to them. Like they can, you know, they can, I mean, that was a joke at the time, but not really, you know, in hindsight, but, uh, you know, Japan has, has a excellent, an excellent track record, right, of, um, uh, of infrastructure, of support, of marketing. I mean, unprecedented, right? I'm not sure that any other country stays in it this long at the billions and billions of dollars beyond the initial 7 billion, which I think at the time was described as a very, um, oh, worst case scenario, you know, 7 billion, $7 billion. And now it's like, boy, that seems like, God, that would be the best case scenario given, you know, what, um, you know, what all has transpired. But I'm not sure any other country maybe except for one, you know, stays in it this long. And that would be, you know, like a China situation, right? So you've got Japan and China, the next, uh, you know, coincidentally, the next two Olympic and Paralympic games, um, summer and winter. Um, but I, I got to say, I mean, it's shocking to me, that 80% number, you know, because that is really a sign, you know, that is, um, that the, those are loyalists to the Olympic and Paralympic movement. Those who would travel outside of Japan if the games were elsewhere, you know, that's the crew, the group, that's the crowd now that's saying, yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't think it's a good idea. Um, you know, I, I remember when we spoke at the beginning of the pandemic and uh, I I'd shared with you, Andrew, a little bit about, you know, at the time, um, we were trying to determine, you know, the groups that were involved in all the federations and such. There was a, there was a large handful of sports that had not yet completed their qualification process, um, and and you know, my sport being right currently uh, beach volleyball and sitting volleyball for the Paralympic side, um, they had not finished their qualification, and in fact, sitting volleyball was just 
I mean, literally one day before the travel ban that uh, the former President Trump had put in place, um, you know, sitting volleyball was set to welcome teams from Europe and Africa. And then all of a sudden, everybody was told, hey, the world has shut down. Right. And um, I think a layer of this conversation that we're forgetting about right now is it's not just about will the games happen? Will the qualifications of the remaining sports, you know, that that will need to happen before the games even be able to take place at all? Right. And if it's insane for us to to try to create an, you know, something out of nothing right now with these these qualifications, like some countries can attend, some countries can't. One person doesn't want to wear a mask. Everybody gets sick. You know, I mean, if those questions are already in the conversation in terms of the qualifying events. How in what little time we have left, you know, are we really seriously looking at each other with a straight face and saying, yeah, this can all happen. No problem. We'll just take care of it. Right. I, I'm not sure that that's a realistic, um, you know, a realistic model right now. You know, it's one of the basically. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Lori. Um, one other thing I was going to add to what Lori was saying that helps explain that 80% figure that we're both so baffled or impressed by, not baffled, but impressed by, I think important, is the fact that over the last couple of weeks, Japan's daily COVID death rate has been going up, up, and up, in addition to just the overall case rate of COVID positive cases. And recently, their, their death toll topped 100 in a day for the first time. Now, I know I'm talking to someone from Arizona. It's like, oh, that's like nothing. I mean, we're the hot zone within the hot zone in the United States. So it sounds a little funny to talk about that here. But for, for Japan, these numbers are through the roof and extraordinarily alarming. And so if all of a sudden you're seeing those flash across your TV screen every night and you're thinking about importing a bunch of people from the United States, athletes and their families and whatnot, doesn't sound like a lot of tourists will probably be involved, it looks like. But that's got to be scary from your perspective. No wonder they want to either cancel or, or postpone. I mean, it just seems like ridiculous to host an optional sporting spectacle in such a moment. So, Lori, what is the scenario? Because you're uh, an international technical official with the Paralympics, um, and I'm sure the the decision that's going to be made about the, the Olympics will have a direct impact on what you're doing. But what is the ripple effect of, one, deciding to postpone it, which this would be now the what second or third time that they've decided to postpone the games or canceling it altogether. What would that mean to you and to the athletes that are involved in this? Well, I think let's start with what's that going to mean to, to Tokyo, you know, Tokyo is in my viewpoint of it. And again, I'm, I'm looking at it from, you know, an outsider's view looking in, you know, um, Tokyo has become an Island in, in and of itself. Right. It's almost like this whole thing is going to live and die uh, and it's going to just be Tokyo's success or Tokyo's failure. Whereas previously we've seen like an, an you know, embracing um, or, or the whole nation embracing the Olympic Games. Right. From Osaka to, you know, to Sapporo. I mean, everybody in Japan was at one point just pushing and pushing and pushing for these games. And now you've seen sort of a, a waning effect, you know, and it's just, OK, what's happening in Tokyo? Right. Even though there's going to be the marathon up north and swim and uh, surfing and other events, you know, uh, further away in another zone. Um, this really comes down to, OK, can Tokyo handle it? Um, and I think that the first group we need to look at who this is going to affect and how this is going to affect them is the people in Tokyo right now. Um, two things is one, their infrastructure is basically being put on hold 
um, to, until, you know, I think March is when they said that the next round of decisions, right, tough decisions are going to be announced. Well, the decisions have to already have been made, or at least they know what direction that they're going in, cancellation, postponement, you know, or, or moving forward, right? Um, the, there are people who were supposed to be living in the Olympic Village, you know, already that purchased uh, you know, homes that were that were to be transitioned from the Olympic Village last summer into, you know, their homes now, like where are those people being housed? There are hotels that were built, you know, just for the game. So in terms of the, the tourism impact, you know, and I always talk about when I when I talk about sport, you know, in my profession, I always talk about tourism, right? Because there's always a motivation and the tourism impact of, of no spectators or the costs involved or even hotels that were built for uh, the games that then were never occupied and now have been either shuttered or, you know, businesses have been closed or they've been turned into um, uh, quarantine, you know, uh, uh, quarters or whatnot. I mean, the, the, the impact is, is, has already started to take effect, right, on the people inside the, the zone, right, inside the, the, the um, ground zero, if you will, you know, of this, of this situation. Um, you know, athletes, delegations, I think the athletes right now you know, <laughs> I can't, I can't imagine. I've talked to several of them, not just in the sports that I'm, you know, part of, but I look at, um, you know, particularly the Paralympians, right, who have already limited opportunities to train and to compete. Um, but for all the athletes that, that are either already qualified, um, you know, it's one thing to know you're already qualified and to try to change your, your training schedule still is difficult, but at least, you know, you've qualified. What about the athletes who haven't? Right, who are on the borderline, or who have whose sports have not yet completed their qualification, and you know events get canceled, they get put back on the calendar. Everybody's blood pressure goes up, yay! And then all of a sudden, you know that country is on lockdown, right? So there's an effect mentally, physically, and financially um, on the athletes, on the coaches. Um, what what scared me the most, you know, I have a I come from a, a largely marketing background, but what scares me scared me the most about the really started digging into it is the number of companies that are um, not just, you know, of course, there's the companies that are in direct, you know, uh, support of the IOC and the IPC and whatnot, and the Tokyo organizers. But there's also, there's also the companies that are in direct support of the athletes, of the national governing bodies, of the National Olympic Committees, and a lot of, you know, private companies we used to call ambush, the ambush marketing companies, right, that are not the official sponsors, but they're official sponsors of a sport or a country or whatnot, they're beginning to lose, to lose interest, to lose money, to lose personnel, um, not so much to lose interest in, they're still interested in sport, but they're beginning to lose interest in a one-time, you know, opportunity for an every four-year engagement because they, you know, they just, they can't be certain, right? They can't be certain if I, if I, rent out this facility in Tokyo for all of my customers, all my, well, are we really going to be able to even bring people to the games? Oh, now there's no spectators. Well, what am I going to do, you know, about tickets, about seeing the event? Well, you know, friends and family, right? You've got friends and family also that are wondering if my kid makes it, you know, if they make it or that they're going, well, am I going to be able to watch? Right. And these are big, um, I think, you know, big parts of the, the overall picture, but, um, it's just, uh, there, there are so many angles, you know, to consider. I think the devastation financially, emotionally, mentally, mentally physically, it's going to be a pretty, pretty wide cross-section of, uh, of the sport population. And Jules, one of the largest economic drivers of the Olympics is television rights, broadcast rights. 
what is that, you know, what does that do to an organization like NBC who, you know, had to postpone would have been a very large summer for them in terms of revenue and advertising, but just the amount of money that they pay to secure the rights for the Olympics. Well, I think the money factor explains a lot in terms of why we're hearing now about the possibility that they'll hold the Olympics without spectators and essentially make it a made-for-TV event. If you look at the IOC's own documents on their website, they openly state that 73% of their revenues come from broadcaster rights. Another 18% come from corporate sponsors. In short, that means that nine out of every $10 that flows into the IOC coffers comes from one of those two sources. And so that's why you saw them change the Olympics from July one year, July, August to July, August the next year. That's the pocket of time. That's the, the TV window that works really, really well. And so they had to try to maintain that instead of like having it in a maybe a, a cooler time that might be better for athletes. I mean, those are hot months. And I was there in 2019 in those months going all around Tokyo and down to Fukushima as well. And it was hot. They're going to have the sports then. Um, which is a whole separate story in itself. But yes, I think we need to keep our eye on the economic prize here and think about the influence that groups like NBC, other broadcasters have and how this all plays out. And you mentioned Fukushima. I mean, what is that role? What is the role of the country kind of rehabilitating its image as a result of the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima and the connection to the Olympics? Sure. Well, one of the mantras that came soon after the Tokyo uh, Tokyo was awarded the games was this notion of the recovery Olympics, that hosting the games in Tokyo and Japan more widely would inspire a more robust recovery for the prefecture of Fukushima. And unfortunately, I wish I could tell you that's the way it played out. But unfortunately, I traveled, like I said, to Fukushima and saw with my own two eyes what looked like ghost town after ghost town. And a lot of the people I spoke with, whether they were journalists, everyday people, elected officials who I interviewed uh, for stories I was writing with Dave Zirin, who you mentioned before for The Nation while we were down there, they all were concerned that a lot of the money that was moved through Tokyo was in fact um, staying in Tokyo and not going to Fukushima and that they were getting left behind. And I think the lesson there is, is multifold, but certainly we should be thinking of the fact that a lot of the lingo that the Olympic honchos, whether they're the Tokyo organizers or the International Olympic Committee uses, can be kind of fluffy at times and can be to get us to think that this is going to be a real positive for the people of a, a massively affected area. I mean, it was a total disaster zone, even when I was there in 2019, some eight years after the triple whammy tsunami earthquake and uh, nuclear meltdown. And so, you know, I think about that a little bit even now when we're told that the Tokyo 2020 Olympics are going to be the light at the end of the tunnel. That's one of uh, IOC President Tomas Bach's favorite phrases. He says it all the time and how it's going to inspire us. If people can see them, people doing the Olympics and the athletes doing the Olympics, that we're going to be inspired in our daily lives. And I'm thinking, you know, we just had the NFL here. I didn't feel like people were feeling too inspired by all that. I think it's just kind of fluffy talk that often gets justified. But behind that fluffy talk, real people are suffering. And you know, I had the honor of meeting with a lot of those people who were desperate to get their stories out to the wider world about how people in Fukushima were left behind by all this. So does it beg the question about the role of the Olympics in general, notwithstanding the issue that we have this unfortunate, you know, tragedy of COVID-19, you know, plaguing the world? 
Then on top of it, you add what's going on there in Japan with what happened with, you know, Fukushima and just everything. I mean, what is the role of the Olympics now, Lori? What, what do you think in this highly disrupted world that we live in? And it doesn't seem like disruption is taking a back seat this year in 2021. What, 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 are, what is the role? You know, it, it's for the first time in my professional life, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. And I'm a, a big supporter of the athletes. And again, you know, I've, I've come at it from an outside, you know, looking in perspective, right? My, my job, my career and everything has been about the support structure. You know, I've never actually worked for the USOPC or um, uh, the organizing committee in Tokyo. You know, my world for the last umpteen million, you know, Olympic Games, you know, has been about the support and the things that happen in the periphery. I'm not seeing any of that now. You know, and, and part of that, yes, is due to the fact that life in sport, international sport in particular, has pretty much, you know, screeched to a halt, right, in the last, in the last year or so. But it's, um, you know, at one point, I, I would have answered that question, Andrew, by saying, you know, there is a legacy, you know, or the, and a lot of people say the same thing, you know, there can be a legacy left behind. I take the Los Angeles you know, situation is very interesting to me because on the one hand, you know, I saw some of the legacy projects that were left behind from 84, but on the other hand, that came at a very large cost, you know, to the society in which those projects were, were embedded, right? And so there's, you can't, you can't talk about the benefits without talking about the losses, right? And oftentimes we only hear, oh, it did this, this, this many, um, you know, this many uh, opportunities or programs and such. And I don't make light of that, you know, but now for the first time, as, as somebody who has been a staunch supporter of not just the games themselves, but the environments created around the games and before and after, I'm looking at Tokyo, you know, and, and with the same eyes that I looked at Athens or Rio or any of the other cities, you can make an argument that, that almost, you know, a path of destruction was left in the wake after the games left town. It's a fantastic two weeks, you know, it's, it's like the, the most exciting two weeks, you know, for everybody while you're there, but then somebody has to to clean up after, you know, and you, you look at the empty pools, or for me, it was, you know, when I first started to, to kind of not so much get jaded, but kind of have that reality check was seeing this beautiful beach volleyball venue in Athens that I had watched for almost 10 years, you know, come to fruition. And I knew people that were, you know, directly involved and helping to bring it to life. And now I look at it and it looks like a a cat graveyard, you know, it looks like a dumpster, right? Well, that's what happens when you don't, you know, when when you can't follow, um, you know, the pomp and circumstance with any meaningful infrastructure, any meaningful action. Now, what we're seeing in Tokyo, and again, this is my, you know, my personal, you know, uh, lens that I'm looking through is I'm kind of seeing what is usually the post games destruction unfold pre games. You know, I'm seeing the empty stadiums. I'm seeing the hard work that colleagues and friends that, you know, that I have that have been working on this since, you know, since the day the games were awarded to Tokyo, right. In the federations and the sport federations in the, the marketing, you know, area at Dentsu, you know, I've had, I have friends worked at Dentsu that just have given their whole lives. And now they're looking at, okay, well, what was it for all these years? You know, what was, what, what did I accomplish? Well, I, I don't know because we don't know what's going to happen next. Right. So I feel like, I feel like I'm looking at the empty swimming pool or the, you know, the empty arena or the pigeons sitting on the beach volleyball court, you know, with all the cats digging into the sand. I feel like I'm looking at that now before the games, 
happen. And it, you know, that's part of my sadness, my personal sadness about, I think we've lost sight. What, what is the purpose of the game? I'm not sure anymore, to be honest. You know, I, I can't really answer that. Um, you know, really and Jewel, with any, and, <laughs> with, with any credibility. And Jules, you wrote a book called no Olympians, which was published in April of 2020. So I'm, I'm imagining that already there's a new chapter to be written, right? As the pandemic was beginning to unleash itself, your book comes out. What do you think the role now is of the Olympics? And is there a role for the Olympics moving forward? Yeah, well, that book, No Olympians, Inside the Fight Against Capitalist Megasports in Los Angeles, Tokyo, and beyond, looks at anti-Olympics activism historically and then how it's taken shape in Tokyo and especially Los Angeles, where there's a vibrant social movement that's emerged there called No Olympics LA. And, you know, the games used to be so incredibly popular where you could walk up to the podium and say, we'd like to bid on the Olympics and hardly get any pushback. Those days were only like 15 years ago, really. But the ground has really shifted under the feet of those who are running the Olympic Games. I was fascinated to hear Lori's poignant response to that. And I really appreciate you sharing your, your sentiments and well-informed sentiments from someone who's worked on the inside. I mean, I think the way I look at the Olympics is it's basically kind of like a, a car that has been going along pretty well. All of a sudden, the check engine light comes on because of all these destructive patterns that Laurie was talking about in the wake of the games, whether it's overspending, militarization of the public sphere, greenwashing that is associated with the games, displacement, gentrification that the games spike. That check engine light comes on. And basically what the International Olympic Committee has decided to do is basically just take a piece of duct tape and put it over the top of that check engine light and not actually deal with it. Another way of thinking about it is that COVID-19 has, has shined a light on issues that the Olympics have long sort of shoved under the rug. So coronavirus has made it plain that the Olympic Games have some significant underlying problems. We might call them pre-existing conditions, but all that I just listed right there and some that Lori mentioned as well. So if there is a future for the Olympics, it has to look radically different than it does today. After all, when Japan was handed the games and Tokyo bid one out over the other bids at the time, they were seen as the safe pair of hands. That's a quote from the count who was running the IOC at the time, Jacques Rogue, the Belgian count and yachtsman. And he said they were a safe pair of hands. Well, I'm sorry to say Tokyo has bobbled the ball in a lot of ways under conditions that were kind of out of their control. I mean, sure, they got the buildings done. We all kind of knew that that was going to get taken place. But they conformed to many of the problems that preceded the Tokyo Olympics and looked like they're going to play out afterwards as well. And so we're at this fascinating moment. We're at this inflection point when it comes to the Olympic Games. And what's going to happen? Maybe Tokyo will get us to slow down and realize that you know the whole games need a, a rethink. That happens to be the camp that I'm in. I come at it from the ground up, like from communities that don't get to buy tickets to the Olympics because they can't afford tickets to the Olympics. And I go talk to them. So my viewpoint is most assuredly inflected by that. But I think there needs to be a massive rethink. And the time is absolutely right today. So final question, uh, and I'll start it with you, Jules, and I'll leave it with you, Lori. Two questions. Should the games go on? Personally, what's your, your, your feeling? And will the games go on? What will the decision be? I Jules. Appreciate, I appreciate the distinction, Andrew. I think it's a really important one. And, you know, it, it brings me no great pleasure whatsoever to say that I do not think that cancellation is the, I mean, I don't think the games should go on. I think cancellation is 
the wisest course. I wrote an essay for the New York Times saying as much in March 2020, and I've seen nothing to convince me in a different direction. I don't have confidence in the International Olympic Committee. I'm afraid to say they tend to look out for numero uno, and that's themselves. And I think the folks in Japan are starting to realize this in Technicolor on a daily basis. Now, there's no question that sports help us escape the grit and grind the, the coronavirus has put in front of us. But I think pushing ahead with the Tokyo Olympics is to create a huge Petri dish, a real possibility for danger in the future. I actually think that if the International Olympic Committee and Tokyo organizers approached it right, they could say that canceling the Olympics is a gesture for all of humanity, that we just shouldn't be holding optional sporting spectacles in a time where there's so much human suffering and that it's actually a sign of solidarity to cancel the games. Now, if they do go that route, I would insist that athletes get shoveled boatloads of money out of the IOC reserves. And they have reserves, by the way, like lots of reserves that we would all envy. They should get shoveled that money for mental health support and maybe even just general support. I mean, lots of athletes here in the United States go into debt, start GoFundMe campaigns to pay for their uh, roads to the Olympics and Paralympics. And so, you know, I, I think that there's got to be a rethink and a push of money that direction. So there, it's a multi-part thing. There's just so many things in the air right now. And um, I, I just think that it is probably the wisest course to cancel. I don't think they're going to do anything until at least March when the um, schedule starts for the Tokyo uh, Torch Relay. And I think they can hold off until then and see what happens. But inside of Tokyo, it doesn't even, they haven't even really started their vaccination program. And it doesn't look like it'll be done until May. And I think that's just cutting it so close for the general population to get on board for something like this. So in some, I think it should be canceled. It brings me no pleasure to say that to the athletes who I admire massively, but it's the right thing for global public health. And do you think they will go on? That's a totally separate question. Like you said before, and, <laughs> I think at this point, they're angling for a made for TV event where right. we limit the number of athletes. They only come in for a certain amount of time and then they leave. They stay in the village, the Olympic village where the athletes live for only a certain amount of time and then they leave. But there are so many open questions. You know, I talked to a lot of Olympic athletes behind the scenes and they voiced a lot of big questions for, for me to think about. Like, will the International Olympic Committee require athletes to sign COVID waivers that say they won't sue the IOC in the wake of the games if they get COVID and then maybe myocarditis or like long-term COVID. We have no idea. They want to know those kind of things. How secure will the village be in terms of COVID protections? Will athletes be asked to stay with other athletes from other countries in their sport? Are you, is that how you're going to sort of shelter people in place in the sport? Because what happens if um, you know, COVID goes wildfire through like the Japanese Olympic team or the Chinese Olympic team staying in the Olympic village. It could wipe out the whole country instead of wiping out a whole sport. Those are just the tip of the iceberg questions. And so, you know, there's so many things in play, but I do think that money is talking. And if they can pull it off, the International Olympic Committee being they, they will do it. Lori? You know, I, yeah, the the theme of the Olympics or their, you know, the, the Japanese part of their, you know, their culture is to always come up with a theme, right? Or a, um, a saying or a slogan and united by emotion, right? Happens to be their current um, theme of the games. I'm emotional in answering this question because I feel so, I mean, I just feel for not, you know, the athletes certainly and, and the delegations and all the, the people that have put the work in to participate on the competitor side. But I feel more um, torn apart inside for all the people that I know. I've been doing business in Japan for 30 years, 
right? And and a number of who I would consider to be very close friends have been working for years, either in their federations, their sport federations, or for the organizing committee, and have done a tremendous job. You know, the Japanese take their their work um, very seriously. You know, and and try to achieve the highest level of excellence always, right? And always try to do the right thing. Um, and, and those in sport, you know. I'm thinking about, you know, I just, I'm heartbroken for them, you know, but as emotion filled as this topic is, you know, for me personally, I definitely, um, you know, the, the, the other day there was the, the article that got put out about, oh, the Japanese have decided, you know, privately, secretively to cancel, you know, to cancel the games. And ironically, that was the same day that I received from the uh, my uh, my technical director for, uh, for my sport in the Paralympic side, um, had received my rescheduling information, you know, for, for flights and, and everything else. And there was a part of it was like, Ooh, you know, like, Oh God, like, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, I mean, I barely leave my apartment, right. I, I haven't gone home to Hawaii in almost a year because I'm afraid of, you know, the spikes and the fact we only have one hospital. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be very cautious. And there's a big part of me that was like, Oh man, you know, I, I don't know, right. For my own security and safety and whatnot. Um, the other, you know, the other side of this is, and I go back to the events that have to take place or be completed before we can even finish qualifying athletes for the games. I have a really, and, and this is a very cynical, from even even for me, right? This is a very cynical point of view, but I have a really hard time with all the the man hours I know have been put in behind the scenes. Um, for, you know, taking it taking it again from the perspective of. The events that still need to to take place in order to qualify the athletes to get to the games. You know, and my my point of view, and that yes, I think there's probably cancellation is the best, you know, for, uh, the best option. It comes because I know for a fact that there are athletes who have publicly voiced they're you know not willing to wear a mask. They're they feel that their freedoms are being constricted um, by being asked to quarantine for any number of days. You know that they. Uh, they kind of feel like, well, I should be able to participate under my rules and regulations. And, you know, I would never try to tell another person that they can or can't do what they want to do, except in this case where it's going to kill everybody else around you. Yeah, you probably want to follow the, the instructions. You know, all of us are doing, there's a lot of man hours that are being put in behind the scenes and outside of the media purview. And, and you know, yes, behind closed doors, people banging their heads against the wall trying to figure out like how to fit this this square peg in this round hole, right? Like how do you how do you make it safe when you can't guarantee that these people from this country aren't going to infect the rest of these people from that country? And and it just takes one person, right, to break rank with protocol with medical protocol, and the whole village can be infected. Right. right? So so that sort of is where you know my head is at in terms of I, I would like to not see. And he, the, you know, as much as I love the metal count and I like the little graphic with the medals and number of countries, I don't want to see the death toll that goes along with that, right? Whether it's made for TV or not. Yeah. And and I'm, you know, again, I'm torn because I'm a real big supporter of, of the, the games and all that it can bring when done properly, you know, to a society. But I'm also a realist and I'm not stupid. You know, I know exactly what will happen. We've seen now what will happen, you know, in the wake of, um, an Olympics during normal times. Now we're seeing even before the games occur, what the damage is going to be even before the games happen, you know, in, in pre-Olympic times. So, uh, you know, should they be, probably cancellation to me is 
while not the most popular choice and likely, <laughs> um, you know, really going to be devastating to a lot of people, that probably is the wisest of the options that are available. I do think they will happen um, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't, and because of all the things that we've talked about from the very beginning, the economic impact, um, good, bad, you know, the good, bad, and ugly of it is there's a lot of money at stake. Right. You know, and um, money talks to people. You know, do I do I think that that's a justification for what happens next? No, no, I don't. You know, I'm not in a position to say that, but I don't. I do think that there is a, um, you know, there's going to be a push. That there's going to be something. It's not maybe not going to be like any Olympics we've ever seen before, but I do think, um, you know, at least at this point, I, I would love to wait until March to answer that question because I think we'll know more after this next round of discussions and whatnot. There's still a lot of sports that haven't been able to qualify what do you do about modifying the formats all those other things you know all the practical boots on the grounds things that that uh you know they're not the sexy things but they're the things that have to happen in order for games to take place that's not all it's not all decided yet you know and so will they happen yeah i think they probably will i i, I would i'd be more confident in my answer in march <laughs> have us back in march and we'll see where we are <laughs> Well, that uh, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like both you and Jules are, are are already advancing yourselves for a future Global Sport Matters podcast update, which looks like will happen in March. So, Lori, Jules, thank you so much for being on the show, and we will definitely continue to follow what's going on in Tokyo. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Our special thanks to Jules Boykoff and Lori Okamura. We've put a link to Jules's book, No Olympians, in our show notes. This episode was produced by Kendall Jones. The Global Sport Matters podcast is a production of the Global Sport Institute at Arizona State University. Our manager of marketing and communications is Crisal Valencia. Our manager of events and programs is Kendall Jones. Our marketing and communications assistants are Julia O'Connell, and Katie Cross. And a special welcome this week to our newest marketing and communications assistant, Natalie Skegan. To stay up to date on the latest from the Global Sport Matters team, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Global Sport MTRS. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter on our website by clicking the envelope icon at globalsportmatters.com. I'm Andrew Ramsamy. Until next time, Wash your hands and wear a mask.